Hello and welcome to the Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Kleinwort Ambrose. In this series, we will be helping listeners make sense of the world of wealth. My name is Fahad Kamal, Chief Market Strategist at Kleinwort Ambrose, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, I'm joined by John Birdwood, Director of Portfolio Management and lead fund manager on our target return strategies. We'll be talking about all sorts of things, such as do we live in a world of shortage or abundance? How does the impact of new technologies affect us and our growing demands? And how do we invest to gain from all these things? Welcome, John. How are you? Very well. Good morning. So, John, you are the fund manager of our target return strategies. What in the world are those? Okay. Well, if... If I can just briefly elaborate, most portfolios are managed against benchmarks made up of weights composed of bonds or equities and some alternatives. And managers then manage the portfolio relative to that benchmark. And if the market goes down, you're still going to be invested in those assets. You might have less of them, but you're still going to be exposed. The target return approach is to think about prospective returns And then to say, in our view of the world, are there assets that we do not want to hold? In which case, let's hold none of them, even though they might be very big markets, like, for example, the global equity market. So how is the management of target return different? What is it that you're trying to really do at the end of the day? You've got all this flexibility, but what's the goal? The goal is inflation plus five for the longer running strategy. Yeah, and of course, we never hit it. We're either a long way ahead or some way behind. But the the meaning of the target, uh, according to Barclays' equity guilt study, inflation plus five is the annual average return on the London equity market since 1899. So it is an equity-like return, and we're trying to get there with much less volatility. So equity-like return and bond-like volatility, what's not to like? What we don't want to achieve is bond-like returns with equity volatility. Yes, that would... (laughs) Obviously, that would be that would be defeating the purpose. So, is this very? Do you have a very different way of looking at the world, given that you have a absolute return-minded strategy that you look after primarily? I think it enables us to be a bit more iconoclastic. And a question that um, we ask ourselves a lot is, when we look at an asset, if we didn't own it, would we buy it? And it's amazing how often uh, investment managers fall in love with investments and continue to hold something that has been good in the past and then forget to sell it. Indeed. So, John, if I can just dial back for a second and Mm. say, wow, I mean, you are here, you're managing one of our top strategies uh, it is it has had a fabulous track record if i if i do say so on your behalf with really over the long term providing equity like returns at bond like volatility give or take how did you get into this uh, in the fixed income and currency markets uh, rather too many years ago so i started in foreign exchange dealing room in 1978 and then started managing investment portfolios in 1982 and then gradually, you know, over the years, I've done a number of things. Most of my time has been spent doing international asset allocation. Um, and that's really where I feel most comfortable, making the larger decisions about big blocks of markets. Now, John, I've set you up nicely because you've basically given us a breadth of your enormous experience in, in this industry. You've been around for a long time. You're an old hand. As a result, I have a series of 
impossibly difficult questions for you that I'm going to start now. Do you think we live in a world of shortage or abundance? Well, the short answer is we live in, in both, but we need to think about where they occur. There are shortages, but these are almost all uh, creations of the public sector. Not enough road space, public sector issue. Not enough housing, public sector issue. Uh, shortage of schools, uh, a public sector issue. To give you an example, in Kent, uh, which still has grammar schools, uh, the annual demand for grammar school places far outweighs the, the provision. If you or I were running a business, we'd think, great, let's open another one. But no, the public sector knows better, and it's taken, I would say, the best part of 20 years for a branch of a school, grammar school, to be opened in Seven Oaks. The private sector would not let that unmet demand exist for anything like so long. There's also... I don't want to stray too far into the realm of politics, but I think there is a shortage of good quality politicians, mm. uh, not just in this country, but um, well, around I, the world. You didn't want to stray too far into politics, but let me say you, 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 you've, 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 gone, you've dived right in. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and better quality politicians would deal with some of these shortages. Surely they have teams of technocrats that can, that can help address and, and answer you know, the best policy-related solutions to, to, to these difficult questions. Well, you, you, would, you would like to think so, but, uh, for example, we've been, I don't know how many reviews there have been into uh, expanding Heathrow Airport. Uh, I don't know when the question was first mooted, but I suspect it's lasted most of my career. So, okay, so you, you've touched a bit on shortages, and mm. so but where are there where are there abundances? I would suggest that most of what the private sector does is producing abundance, and the abundance will increase. To take it at its most simple level, according to the WHO in 2016, there were one billion people in the world who were overweight. The Food and Agriculture Organization in 2018 said there were 815 people who were malnourished. I think this is the first time in human history that there have been there are more people who have too much to eat or eat too much than there are people who don't have enough. Surely that's an example of abundance. It's actually it's funny you say that because I I was reading you know in the Victorian age a more plumpish stature was considered quite a sign mm. of wealth because you know clearly you had plenty to eat etc but we are now in a world where the opposite is true where 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 a more plumpish stature and I'm really talking about myself here there's a there appears to be some sort of correlation between better health and and, and wealth obviously and and that largely is reflected in in obesity and weight statistics uh, y yes, there is. And, and I mean, there are many aspects to this. Well, one of which, of course, is that food prices have fallen and continue to fall. Uh, for example, the world wheat price is where it was 50 years ago. Population demands have increased enormously. I think this abundance is only going to uh, increase because you and I have both looked at the demographics. It's not going to be too long into the future before increase in global population falls below 1% a year. Well, it's funny you say that because, because you know, just on demographics and, and, and this sort of seeming abundance in so many sort of food items or in general privately produced goods, the world population is surely, you know, sort of the demographic profile is declining in the West, but globally it's increasing because just if you think of the UN statistics, we're at roughly about 8 billion people now. We're going to be growing into to 11 billion by the end of the century. So there is certainly still population growth occurring. There are lots of private sector forecasts who think those UN projections are, are way out. I might live to see, and you should live to see, 
population peaking considerably earlier than that at a much lower number. But either way, the thing that matters is not the the number of people, it's the rate of change. Uh, If the population is increasing at at 1% a year or less, uh, and, you know, 30 or 40 years ago was increasing much more rapidly, I think the, the abundance of food production will only increase. And to illustrate the point... Um, land use for agriculture in the United States has been falling steadily. Uh, in 1971, it was 47.5% of the land area of the United States. Now it's 44.5%. Now, uh, green critics of, of, of this will say, but that's only because fertilizer and, uh, and pesticide use has increased so much. Actually, those increases stopped some time ago. Uh, fertilizer use has been going slightly downwards, pesticide use has been falling quite sharply. That's partly a reflection of um, actually uh, an increase in organic farming, which doesn't use those things. It's partly the influence of genetic engineering on crop types. It's partly a reflection of of better management of those uh, inputs. The management of those inputs is going to improve dramatically, in my opinion, because uh, of the use of drones, for example, in pesticide use. So instead of spraying the whole field, your drone goes up and looks around and you program it to say, if you see this plant, squirt it, and then you can leave the rest of the field alone. The the tests for that sort of thing have shown that pesticide use will fall by 75%, perhaps more. So I don't see any reason why agricultural productivity is not going to continue increasing faster than population growth. That means the overweight malnourished ratio is only going one way. That's just food. What about energy and raw materials? Well, the Russians and the Saudis have engaged in a price war over the price of oil. The The Saudis have always had a low cost of production. Um, The Russians have taken advantage of the shale revolution to exploit their own fields and probably have similar break-even rates of production as uh, as the Saudis. I think we're in for a long period of very low energy prices um, as those two slug it out. And, by the way, a third of the world's land surface is shale. We are not running out of oil and gas. We will stop using it long before we run out of it. It's interesting you say that, right? Because clearly in in this abundance that you're describing, whether it's in terms of agriculture, whether it's in terms of energy, clearly the the sort of the real dynamic has been an increase in productivity as a result yes. of um, of uh, technology advancements, right? Yes. So in agriculture, it's been more efficient use of, of the inputs. Uh, in, in energy, for example, as you said, shale and the fact that we are able to extract oil from places that was unthinkable 30 years ago has been the big game changer. What is the impact of these technologies and technology in general on the world that we live in? I mean, obviously, it's dramatic, but how do you see it? Are we all destined to become robots one day? Where do we go from here? Uh, uh, clearly, there are people who think that um, robots are going to take over uh, everything. I would um, I would point out that I don't think it's possible to digitize intuition and empathy. Uh, and so the dim old human will always have uh, a place. And I'll offer you one example of that. Um, I don't know whether you've ever seen a film of babies being born underwater. And the baby has no experience of life. And what does it do as soon as it's born? It swims upwards. How the hell does it know that? So I think there's, there's always going to be a place for us. And 
what all of these technological changes will do is to enable us to do things I was going to say better, but in practice it's less badly. Indeed, and actually, you know, if you just think about, and I, I, this is something you and I talk about a lot as well, is that creative destruction and technological revolutions are part and parcel of the human experience. Yeah. You know, there used to be a time in this country where being a blacksmith was a very common um, occupation. Yes. But of course that was destroyed, creatively destroyed. We have no blacksmiths anymore, but we still have a very low unemployment rate. It's not as if suddenly, you know, that the blacksmiths were out of work and then they never worked again. Well, I, th I think I've quoted to you um, uh, J.K. Galbraith, who mm -hmm. died a number of years ago. And in the uh, late 1950s, uh, he was asked uh, what the computer would do to American jobs. And he said, well, it will destroy 50 million American jobs. And then um, in the height of the tech bubble, 40 years later, uh, he was interviewed on Bloomberg and the interviewer said, well, what about your ridiculous assertion that the um, computer would destroy 50 million American jobs? And he said, well, it wasn't ridiculous, it was correct. But what I didn't know was that it would also create 100 million American jobs with the result that all of my grandchildren do jobs that didn't exist before, most of which I can't pronounce. And I take your, your point at the very macro level, that you know that, that, that the new technologies won't necessarily uh, outflank us because we'll always have intuition, we'll always have empathy. But nonetheless, there has clearly been societal disruption as a result of automation of some traditional jobs, such as the manufacturing sector has largely undergoing a period of great disruption. A lot of people that used to belong to, you know, one factory towns in the UK with, with a manufacturing plant of some kind are suddenly displaced. How do policymakers balance the various productivity increases that come to one sector of the economy from automation but yet manage to mitigate some of the downsides that we see reflected all around us in inequality, in, in populism, etc.? Well, they have a number of choices. Uh, the, the worst thing to do is to try and stop the change, because it'll happen anyway. So you have to encourage it, uh, nurture it, um, devote time and money to uh, retraining, uh, make sure you have good transport links, flexible labour market, so that uh, people are drawn to the productive sectors. And you have to provide some sort of cushion for, for the people who are going through tough times. Okay. John, there's another investment strategy you look after, which is our blockchain strategy. I'm a huge fan. But for the purpose of our listeners, can you explain quickly what blockchain is and exactly what we do within this strategy? Yes. Uh, by way of background, um, about three or four years ago, um, I was having a conversation with a former colleague who's always been interested in new developments. In the mid-1990s, he and I had a conversation in which he described what the internet was going to do to retailers. And pretty much everything he said has turned out to be the case. When he said to me, this blockchain thing... I think it's going to be bigger than the internet. I thought I'd better pay attention and start finding out. Now, it's important to distinguish between Bitcoin and blockchain. Bitcoin was launched uh, as a proof of concept that blockchain technology worked. And it has. 
but it's only one of many blockchain platforms. Bitcoin is a bit like a football club versus blockchain, which is the game itself. Yes, I, th I think that's a good analogy. Any blockchain is just a network of linked computers. Any group of people could set up a blockchain to digitize the financial records of any series of transactions. First of all, in order to um, access the ledger, every player has their own uh, encryption. And once the, once the transaction has been agreed by all the, the parties, the system reconciles every 10 minutes to make it difficult to hack. Uh, but just very simply, without any of the techno mumbo-jumbo, really what it is, it is, it is a, it's a transaction recording mechanism that is essentially infallible in terms of its security. Correct. I'll give you one example. Uh, Walmart uh, wanted to do a, a test to find out what happened to all the packages of sliced mango that it bought from Mexico. You know, they're either sold, stolen, or destroyed. With the existing systems they had, it took six and a half days to find out what happened to all these millions and millions of packages of mango. With the test on, on a blockchain system, where essentially the farmer and everyone up to the final point of sale can see the whole transaction, it took them two minutes. If you're the boss of Walmart, which, by the way, is engaged in a life-and-death struggle with Amazon for, for retail space, you are going to think, the cost savings I can take out of this business by getting from six and a half days to two minutes over years are going to be enormous. Anybody in the distribution chain is should be looking seriously at, uh, at, at implementing blockchain technology for their operating platform. So it, how would a company like, I don't know, Maersk, which is the global shipping and logistics company, how would they benefit from a ledger, open ledger system, which is digitized? Well, if you think about shipping, the modern shipping industry is essentially using technology that was invented in the 18th century. And there are lots and lots of different parties involved in a shipping transaction. You know, it's, it's the producer, it's the charterer, it's the ship owner, it's the customs, it's, um, it's the inspection, it's, um, it's the banks, it's the insurance companies. There are lots and lots and lots of people all involved in, you know, moving stuff around the world. If they're all connected on a blockchain platform, everybody can see what's going on. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this is adopted by uh, people who are concerned about the provenance of, for example, the clothes they buy. Because you should be able to find out precisely where this thing you're buying for not very much money was made, who buy, conditions... I think it leads to uh, an improvement in, in the standards that are demanded from people who manufacture these things very cheaply. So so coming back to, to Maersk, and, and that's one of the companies that mm. we like uh, in our blockchain note, that's simply because while it's a very traditional company with a, with a traditional business, their margins will greatly increase just by simply by the adoption of new technology. They should do. And obviously there's a series of companies which you've identified that will similarly should benefit from, from what is undeniably a revolution that is, yes. that is underway. Um, and it's, bo it's both the producers of the technology and it's, it's the users. And the, and, the, and the implementers, the people yes. like IBM and Accenture yes. and that kind yes. of thing. Yes. Makes perfect sense, John. As honestly, we this has been fascinating, but I can't let somebody of your longevity and experience in this business 
get away without answering two final questions for us. What is the best advice you have for young investors? Enjoy it um, because it's fascinating. One of my hobbies is doing puzzles. This is the largest puzzle that I have ever come across and there is no correct answer. So it's enjoyable for that reason. The second is think for yourself. The number of times I've come across people who've said something similar to X or Y or Z is unthinkable. And you sort of look at them and think, actually, all you're really saying is you haven't thought about it. So think about things that people tell you are impossible. It's, it's interesting you say that. And just on a related analogy, I, I, I read somewhere yesterday that the amount of information that we get um, is a bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. Mm. You know, what you actually need in terms of water is tiny, but the amount that you're getting is, is just a, a torrent. You need, you need to have a way, a way of filtering. Uh, what's the T.S. Eliot quote? Uh, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And don't stop thinking. Well, John, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's, it's a been pleasure. an absolute pleasure having you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Wealth Chat. To make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'm Fahim Kamal, and on behalf of Time with Hamburgers, thanks for listening. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambrus Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank CI Limited Guernsey branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambrus Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.